Well, church, it's, uh, it's good to see you guys again today. And uh, this is the first time or first time in a little while. This is a little different Sunday for us. Uh, we've been in a series on the life of Christ from eternity past to eternity still future. Uh, we're hitting the pause button on that this morning. Um, very early on, when I first began here at Dallas Bible, I made a commitment to the Lord, to the church, that whenever things took place in the life of the church that just blew up, um, or things that took place culturally just blew up, that we would be a church that does our best to talk about them and address them from the front. And as Travis already alluded to just a little bit early in the service, this is one of those weeks where things blew up in the life of the church. Um, if you've got the email that I sent out earlier this week, uh, then you've heard some of the news, you've been following along on social media, but um, this past week, it was actually last Sunday afternoon, a little Finley Grace Infante, three years old, um, accidentally drowned in her pool. Many of you guys know the Hamlin family who goes to our church, and um, we got a picture up here for you that you, you know the Hamlins, and uh, you've done life with them, you've been in community, they've been a part of our church body for the past year and a half now. They've grown up both sides of their family. The extended family has been in DFW for a really, really long time, and some of you may remember that just a few, week, uh, few months back, we dedicated baby Finley up here on the stage. Um, some of you were even back there in the preschool. You've held her. You've rocked her. Uh, you've done life group. You've mourned with her this week. We saw a lot of you guys out at the funeral um, yesterday. You were there providing food and prayers and comfort and support all week long. And um, it's just, I've heard from a number of you guys just how tragic this entire thing has been. Uh, we know that that's exactly what it is. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Last week, I spent the whole week a lot of the week talking with the family and mourning and grieving. And I heard a number of different things about Finley. Part of the <clears throat> redemptive times of it was sitting there in, in their home and in their living room talking about some of their favorite memories. And there are a few things that they talked about which really highlighted little young Finley's life already at such a young age. They said a few things. Number one, she was a hilarious little personality. She was the little girl even at three years old that uh, I shared some of these stories a little bit yesterday. But she was the girl at three, even at three years old that would just light up a restaurant you know the little girl that you're sitting in there, <clears throat> excuse me, you're sitting in the restaurant all week long and she's the one that pops, pops her head over the booth, you know, and like starts making faces at you and starts like, like, like you could be having the worst day in the world and she's the one that's poking up and, and looking at you and just making your day in the middle of that restaurant. She never met a stranger. Her dad and mom talked about us. She was a little fashionista, a little diva, and she like every outfit she had, she would just, she would make it one, one strap, one shoulderless strap kind of a gown. She saw it on Cinderella and Moana early on that you do one shoulder open, and so she always did that. She's a little fashionista diva making people laugh. Her mom described her as an incredibly compassionate child that knew when people were in pain. She was a little girl that would crawl up to you if you're on the couch and you're having one of those days, and she would just start petting your hair and just saying, Mommy, it's okay. Mommy, it's okay. The other word that they use to describe her, even at three years old, is that she boldly loved the Lord Jesus Christ already. Some of you have been around her in the church, like you know her, you've seen her run through the aisles of the, of, uh, of the church. Um, you've heard her singing at the top of her lungs, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, they talked about that all the time. This little girl was just constantly singing over and over and over again that song all day long at the top of her lungs. She loved the center of attention. She was a little performer. Um, she would take every opportunity she could to be able to go sing about Jesus. 
Uh, Mom told a little story about how she was playing soccer at the youth YMCA camp, and uh, she goes out there and she realizes, hey, hey, uh, this is an opportunity for a crowd. Like, people are gathered around. This is the opportunity to get in front of people, and she gets in front of the whole team, and she just starts singing, Jesus loves me, like, like doing this performance in front of everybody, and then she starts going around, and she starts going, he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. Grandma would talk about it. It didn't matter what restaurant that they were in, but this little girl, like, they, they would, she would pray, and she didn't have the quiet voice. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the quiet voice where you're talking to the people that are right there in front of you. Like, she had the loud voice that was like, all right, I'm praying in front of the entire, entire, in front of the entire restaurant. And she would just go, and she would pray out loud. And, um, and, like, everybody would turn and look at what she's saying. And she had the most sweet and beautiful prayers they were just full of gratitude for everything. She was that little girl that was just like, God, thank you for my mommy. Thank you for my daddy, for my sister. Thank you for this. I mean, her gratitude just, just overflowed all the time, and it just never ended. And even at three years old, she had this beautiful love for Jesus, which, you know, Jesus talks about childlike faith. If there was ever such a thing as childlike faith, I think we're seeing it in beautiful Finley's life. And so we sit here and we, today and, and, and all week long we're grieving, but Paul would remind us that we're not grieving as a people that are without hope because of our profound love for Jesus even at an early age. We know that she has hope. We know that she is in the presence of Jesus right now. We know that that beautiful voice is continuing to sing to this day. Nevertheless, this still is a day of incredible grief as we mourn the loss of someone and we mourn with a family who's a part of our church body here. I've talked with so many of you and this has hit you on a number of different levels, whether you knew the family or not. You really don't even have to know the family for this to be such a, something that's deep and meaningful. You've been there. You've asked the question. This is your greatest nightmare, your worst fear. We've talked about it a lot this week, social media, emails, and things like that. And we've all asked the question, like, well, how in the world would you move forward if this were to happen to me? It's a question that I probably heard more than anything else all week long. How in the world do you move past? And how in the move, world do you move forward in a time like this? I'll never forget, I love one of my favorite quotes is a guy named Frank Turek, and I've shared it here before, but he says, when thousands of people die, it's like headline news to most people. When one person you know love and suffers, your whole world turns upside down. And I can imagine like that's exactly what a number of us are feeling. Like, what do you do when you don't know up from down, right? Like, what do you do when you don't know left from right, when grief is so heavy in your life and it is, it is crushing everything inside of your soul. How do you respond? What do you do when you can't see up from down, black from white, left from, you don't know where to go? I mean, it's the question that has been hitting us most all week long, and it's what I want to deal with this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 22. We're going to be in Psalm 23 a little bit this morning, and that's exactly what I want to talk about is where to go in the middle of these times of extreme grief. I've titled this message, Turning the Page from Psalm 22 to Psalm 23. Turning the page from Psalm 22 to Psalm 23. We just read Psalm 23, this beautiful masterpiece. This is that psalm that you read to your kids maybe, or maybe someone read it to you maybe. Maybe you heard it in children's ministry or something like that. But this is the psalm that you, you memorize, you, you know as a young child. It's this beautiful psalm about the presence of God leading you in this place of peace. And yet, right before we get to Psalm 23, there's Psalm 22, this, this psalm of lament, what is heavy. It's, it's full of questions. It's full of why, God, why? Well, I don't understand what's going on here. And so my hope and prayer is that this morning, whatever you came in here with, maybe you are in a place of grief along with the family. Maybe that this news as you've been processing throughout the week has been hitting you in a way that's kind of bringing up a lot of uh, memories and, and some fresh wounds of things that may not be fully and completely healed in you. Uh, wherever it may be that God would take you 
from Psalm 22, and in his time move you through his grace to Psalm 23. We're going to jump into this. This is a psalm of lament. We know if you, as you're reading the psalms, um, there's a lot of different types of psalms, right? Um, there's, there's Thanksgiving psalms. There's royal psalms that kind of speak of the kingly nature of God. Um, there's a lot of praise and there's a lot of singing. There's psalms of ascent, which the Israelites would sing as they're ascending into Jerusalem on their way up there to worship. Uh, there's a lot of different songs that are going on there and probably the most... Uh, the, the most in number is probably our least favorite, these psalms of lament. Even in this category of psalms of lament, there are personal lamenting psalms and there are corporate lamenting psalms. Whereas the people of God would gather, they would lament their sin. They would lament the things that they've done wrong in their past. They would weep over them and repent. And this is one of these personal ones where the psalmist uh, gets into uh, the depths of it with the Lord. We don't like these type of psalms, as Cameron talked about last week in Psalm 88. Michael Gunger is a worship leader, he's a songwriter, and he tweeted this not long ago. He said, nearly 70% of the psalms are psalms of lament, but exactly 0% of the top 150 CCLI songs, essentially Christian songs that we sing in churches today, exactly 0% of those songs are lamenting songs. It's piercing, isn't it? We're not a people that handle grief very well. We're not a people that that want to engage it. We're not a people that want to talk about it. We're not a people that ever want to go there or enter into it in real honesty or vulnerability or anything like that. Even this past week when I was talking with the father, his thing that he kept saying to me over and over again is, I don't want to grieve. Stop making me grieve. I don't want to enter into this thing. I want it to be done. And if you've ever been there in the, in the time of grief, like, and it is that heavy and it's that painful, that is absolutely what you want it to be done. You want that pain that you're feeling to go away as quick as you possibly can. And yet we still know if you don't ever learn how to deal with grief, you'll never understand what it feels like to be fully healed or to become new, I would say that, to become this new person and God's healing throughout that process. The Psalms are going to be that book that you turn to. They're going to teach you how to lament well. They're going to meet us in that time of grief, and they're going to show you uh, how to grieve well and what God is doing as he meets you in that time and brings you hopefully in time to that next stage. So let's jump into it. Psalm 22 is just very, very raw and very, very honest. Here's what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer me. By night, but I have no rest. Yet you're holy. I know that. You're enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you did deliver them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. Be not far from me, he says in verse 11, for trouble is near, and there's no one else to help. I'm poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within me. Anybody feel like that at all this past week? My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, cotton mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh my God, be my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You will answer me. This is the rhythm of most lament psalms. It begins with this honest expression and this honest cry to God, this honest um, complaint, this cry for help. There's typically a remembrance of things that are true a little bit that you're hoping to believe in the middle of these things when you're struggling to believe anything that's right and good. And, and then there's a, it ultimately ends in this declaration of trust in the goodness of God in the end. But what I love about the psalm is that from the very, very beginning is giving every single one of us permission to be honest as you come before the Lord. That you don't have to pretend that things are okay when they're not really okay. 
I mean, the whole thing is just riddled. This is, this is, an, this is an exercise in, in honesty and vulnerability. It's a beautiful picture of, hey, you don't have to come with your shirt tucked in and everything answers in place and like profound everything perfect and you get to come before the Lord God in, in, in absolute honesty. My God, my God, why in the world have you forsaken me in the middle of this time? Have any of you been there before where you, you, you've had that, that time of grief and you sat there and you said, God, I have no idea why in the world any of this would take place. Like, well, where were you? I prayed for this and it didn't seem to come about. Like, where were you? It's exactly where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here at the beginning of this psalm, he's giving you permission to come to him in your grief in total and complete honesty. And I want to be very, very careful here because we understand, like, there's a way to grieve and to be honest. There's a way to just be honest in general, which isn't always healthy, right? Uh, road rage on 635, right? Those people are being very honest about how they feel. Um, it's not exactly healthy or honest or, or helpful or anything like that. But nevertheless, what the psalmist is doing is saying, hey, this is a safe place. You can come and you can be honest in your grief and you can always, always, always ask the question why. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this is his favorite thing about the psalms. He loved reading the psalms for this reason. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, Martin Luther's a man uh, of extreme grief, right? That's what's going to happen if you're leading a reformation all by yourself at the time. Like there's going to be a lot of grief. And there's going to be a lot of opposition. Martin Luther began his days in a lot of lament and in a lot of tears before the Lord asking for relief. And he said, this is one of my favorite things about the Psalms. He put it like this, and he says, what is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this honest and earnest speaking and the, amid the storm winds of every single kind? Where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, nor, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of lamentation? When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could, depict, could so depict for your fear or hope. And no Cicero or other orator has so portrayed them. And then they speak these words to God, and they speak these words with God. This, I repeat, is the greatest thing of them all. In other words, there's, there's such beauty in knowing that, that he is giving you permission to come to him as you really are in your season of grief. And you don't have to pretend that everything's perfect, and you don't have to pretend that it's all buttoned up and clean. Kate Bowser, uh, Bowler, I'm sorry, wrote a book called uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives That I've Always Loved. She loved that book title. She's living with terminal cancer right now, knowing that her time is coming. And she writes this book in which she dismantles different unhelpful things that people say in times of grief. Hey, it's all going to be perfect. Get over it. Everything happens for a reason. Just take joy in that right in the middle of this thing. She dismantles those things. But in this book, she talks about how raw honesty is the path whereby the Holy Spirit has access to our innermost most depths of our soul so that he can get down to the depths of our soul and he can actually renew and restore and meet you in that place and bring about total and complete healing. And, and she says that unless we, we get to that place of raw honesty be, to the Lord, you're always going to be holding something back from him, something that you're saying, hey, I'm not trusting you with this part of how I feel, how I think, who I really am. And she says, unless we get to the place, we can come before him honestly and grieve as a psalmist does and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't understand what's happening in the middle of this place. I don't understand the pain. I don't understand where you were in the middle of this time. I don't understand why I didn't get a little voice or a little, or a little clue into what was taking place right now. And unless you can get to that place of honesty, you'll never be able to get to the depths of your soul and bring about the healing that you ultimately need. It's exactly what the psalmist is doing here in the middle of his grieving. And I want you to notice that here in the middle of this text, like he doesn't get an immediate answer. He doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, it's so that you can create something greater later, later on. It's so that this can be redeemed and I can have this conversation later on and so that I can be stronger in my faith this time. He doesn't get to the answers at this point in time. 
right? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and he's writing this, and there's not an immediate answer, church, which is a great thing to understand if God's not immediately giving him an answer to this thing. Even Job does this. Job, why, why, where, he cries out to God, where are you? God doesn't give him an immediate answer. He simply says, I'm God. I'm God. Where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? I mean, if God's not going to come and bring an immediate answer to this thing, because he knows that an immediate answer isn't what you need. And if God is that understanding and, under, and knowing that the immediate answer and understanding at that time is not the greatest thing that you need, church, we need to understand that the people that are around us that are grieving at the exact same time, they don't need reasons, they don't need understanding, and they don't need logical explanations for what's going on, too. They need comfort and they need your compassion. And the psalmist is crying out, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not a thing that we need to run to. We know that because it's exactly what Jesus says while he's hanging there on the cross. The very last thing, one of the last things he says is he's hanging there and he's absorbing the sting of the weight of the, sin, of the sin of the world on his shoulder. He cries out to the Father and he says, my God, my God, the exact same thing. Why in the world have you forsaken me? He's not afraid of your honesty. He's not afraid of vulnerability. He's not afraid of what's going on inside of you. He's saying, you can come to me, give me access to the innermost depths of your soul because that's where I need to go in order to bring you total and complete healing in the end. There's, total, there's, there's beautiful permission here as the lament psalms open up. It continues on, and in the very next, in the very next verse, in verse 3, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry day by night. You don't answer. Uh, I have no rest. Verse 3, he simply says, I know this. I know that you're holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted you did deliver them. In other words, he's doing whatever he can in the middle of this time to remember what's true in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his agony, and in the middle of this confusing season of life, in the middle of his grief when nothing makes sense in that time. I don't know up from down. I don't know left from right, right from wrong. I don't know black from white. I don't know anything of these, like in the middle of my grief, I can't make sense of anything that's taking place. Yet, yet I know that you're holy, he says. I do know that. Church, it's exactly what we've, we, we've, we're all clinging to, right? In the middle of grief, you're kind of going, like, what do I know is true in the middle of this time? Because this is a time of contrast, right? I know that you're loving, but I don't feel very loved right now. I know that you're all wise. This doesn't seem like there's a lot of wisdom right now. In the middle of grief, this is a time of just massive contradictions right in front of your face. And you're trying to do whatever you can to cling on to and to hold on to whatever is true. Church, it's what you always do whenever you're lost. We, we go into the woods, if you've ever been in the woods playing or anything like that, and, and you're trying to figure out, like, I have no idea where I am. If you've ever been lost in the woods, what's the first thing that you do? You begin to look around, and you start looking around, and you're kind of going, okay, I remember that tree over there. And you're looking around, and you're going, like, I, I know that shrub. I know those footprints over there. I remember the sun was that direction over there. And you're trying to do whatever you can to remind yourself of what you know is absolutely true in the middle of such confusion. You do the same thing, you lose your keys. Where was the last place I put my keys? Okay, that's true. That's true over there. That's true over there. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing. In the middle of his despair, he's trying to come back and he's saying, Lord, nothing with what I'm seeing here makes any sense. My God, my God, why in the world have you forsaken me? Okay, but I, but, but I know that you're holy. I know that you're holy, he says. In other words, I know that the sin and evil and, and death and loss, I know these things aren't from you. I know that in you there is no darkness at all. I know that you are totally and completely pure in all things. I know that in you, you are the very definition of love. I know who you are in the middle of this grief, even though it doesn't make any sense. And he's professing these things over and over and over again. I know that you're holy, even when nothing else makes sense. I know that 
There's a very real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that's good in this world and everything that's good about my life. I know that there's an antagonist. I know that there's a deceiver who wants to come and see my life fully and completely destroyed. I know that you're holy, and I know that there's an antagonist, and I know that there's these other things that are taking place all around me when nothing else makes sense. I love the way Beth Moore puts this. I, in her book, Praying God's Word, I recommend this to everybody to keep just all the time. Um, I was reading this this past week, and in chapter 10, on her chapter about overcoming despair resulting from loss, she writes this as a reminder. She says, Satan is an opportunist. Would he come after you while you're down in a heartbeat, if he had a heartbeat? Let's wake up from our deceptive slumber and open our eyes to the fact that Satan is the one behind every childhood victimization, every suicide, every scandalous fall of a righteous man. The word appropriate is not in his vocabulary. He's not polite. He doesn't give us room to grieve and wait until we're on our feet again so we can have a fair fight. Satan always fights dirty. Church, you better believe it. He is a, she is absolutely right about that, is she not? There is a very real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that's good in your life. And he will not wait for you to be up on your feet before he sneaks into the time of your grief and begins to try to deceive you in the middle of your grief. It's just what he does. He is always trying to deceive you and to try to get you to, it's kind of like, if you remember playing dodgeball maybe in PE as, a, as an, in elementary school or something like this, you remember playing dodgeball and inevitably it's going to get to the scene where there's going to be like 10 kids left on one team and one kid left on the other team. You remember what happens when, when, that, when that takes place? Like the person who's got one in, against 10, somebody on the 10 team, they're going to lob a ball up in the air. And the one, the, the person who's by themselves, they're going to be like, ooh, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to catch it. Meanwhile, there's going to be like nine balls that destroy you from every angle in the world. I mean, it's exactly how he operates. He knows that if he can get you to fixate on this little thing over here, and, it, and if you can just fixate on this little lie over here, and you, and you forget about all the different things that are around you, like he knows that he can crush you in the middle of that place. It's, it's what he wants to do. He's a liar. He's a, he's a deceiver. He... He wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that's good in your life, and he will attack in the middle of that despair. Even David here in the psalm, like, what prompted this, this destruction that's going on? Do uh, you remember the occasion for this? I mean, David's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What prompted this entire thing? It was David and Bathsheba, the adultery which led to his murder of his friend, which led to the disruption inside of his own home, which led to the disruption of a kingdom. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David brought this all on in, in these different ways. And in the middle of that place, he's, he's listening to the lies of the deceiver saying, hey, you know what? You've had a good run as king of Israel. You're a very godly man. You're a man after God's own heart. You can go and have a little taste of what's going on over here. You can indulge this thing over here. It, it won't be a big deal. And he listens to the lies of the deceiver. I mean, it's exactly how he wants to operate. And so in the middle of this, in the middle of this despair, kind of going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing is making a whole lot of sense right now. It feels like you hate me. I know that you love me, but it feels like you hate me. It feels like, uh, it feels like there's no wisdom about this thing. I know that you're wise. None of this makes any sense. He simply cries out and he says, here's what I do now. I know that you're holy. And he continues on and he says, I know that you're always faithful to deliver. That's what he says in verse 4. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you did deliver them. To you they cried out and they were delivered, and you they trusted, they were not disappointed. In other words, in other words, he's saying, I, I know that that's who you are. I know that you're a deliverer. Even though it feels like you're not a deliverer right now in my circumstance, like I know that that's who you are. I know that you've done it in the past. My ancestors have told me these stories. Church, you remember the scenario he's talking about right here? 
This is the deliverance of the nation of Israel from the bondage of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. This is Moses. I, I know that you're a faithful God. We cried out for deliverance. And in the middle of that place, you were faithful to bring Moses in these ten plagues. And, and you, were able, you were faithful to bring us out and to deliver us in the middle of that tragedy. And it's not deliverance from, the, from, ever, from the persistence or presence at all of any kind of evil or pain or tragic things. I mean, they were enslaved by the hands of the Egyptians. Right? They really were wandering in a desert, wondering, hey, are we going to ever eat again? And in the middle of that place, God sent manna and provision. They were wondering if they were ever going to have a home again. And in the middle of that place later on, God would bring them into their brand new home. And so he's sitting here and he's kind of going, okay, I, I don't know what to believe. I don't know how to process what's going on here, but I do know that you're a deliverer. I've seen it throughout the course of my life. I've seen it in my nation's history. I've seen it in my life right here. I know that you deliver me, church. Like, what would it be like if in the time of your grief, you were absolutely certain that he is a deliverer because you have been practicing and rehearsing the goodness of God and the ways that he has delivered you throughout the course of your, his, your life over and over again every single day? Little Finley saying of the goodness of God every single day. He loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. She sang it and sang it and sang it and rehearsed it and it was on the tip of her tongue over and over and over again. Church, like what would it be like if you were so convinced of the different ways that he has delivered you throughout the course of time that you were prepared for your time of grieving you were able to say, nothing makes sense in the middle of this time. Yet I know at this point in time when I was five years old, you delivered me. And I know that you delivered me in this family situation. And I know that you delivered me in this tragic situation over here. And I know that you you deliver me in college, and you deliver me in my young adult years, and you deliver me through infertility, and you deliver me through this tragic thing after another, and I know that that's who you are. You are a delivering God, and that is the only thing that I can cling to is that in your due time, you'll deliver me and bring me out of this pain that I'm feeling in the middle when nothing in my life makes sense whatsoever. Church, what would happen if you could believe that in that time? One of the most beautiful stories I heard from this weekend, I just heard it 30 minutes ago. Allen Valley came and, I don't know if you're here right now, um, ministered to little Collins, five, the five-year-old sister, in a way like you would not believe. You know the Valley's story. They, too, lost a little girl very early on. Allen lost his little sister. He's now 10 years old. He was there at the funeral service, and evidently after the service, he runs up to Colin, Collins, and he gives her a book. Um, heaven is real for kids. And she comes and he gives her a big giant hug and 10-year-old Alan gives her a big giant hug and says, Collins, the same thing happened to me. I want you to know that, that the same thing happened to me and that God will take you through this. And he goes, I want to give you this book that helped me through this, especially page this, that, and the other. And he opened it up and she just looked at him and she goes, Really, this, you lost your sister? And really, probably for the first time, she connected with somebody that entire week. Ten-year-old little boy that experienced the exact same thing. And a few years removed from this incident is able to come down and minister to a five-year-old little girl and say, I know it doesn't make sense, and I know you don't understand why. None of us are going to understand why. All I can tell you is that he's a God who delivers. And the reason I can tell you that is because it's exactly what he did for me. I saw it with Don Moody, our preschool minister. We have some aces on this staff, church. I hope you know that. News came out immediately. Brian Radabaugh, was a, he was right there in that hospital. Don Moody was right there caring for the family right then and there. I watched Don Moody come and just hug 
these ladies all week long and sit with these families in the middle of their grief. And she got to sit there and say, I'm a widow. I lost my husband the week before Chandler was born. Many of you may have heard her story before, many of you not. I promise I'm going to get her up here and share this testimony because her faith is absolutely just rock solid and it is incredible. Nevertheless, there was very, very, very real pain, very, very, very real darkness. And a very, very, very real God who met her in the middle of that was patiently taking her through step by step by step and brought her out of this. And in the middle of that place, she was able to come to a grieving mom and say, I know that there's a faithful God who delivers because it's exactly what he's done for me. And I know you can't see it right now. And I know none of it makes sense and none of it probably will make sense for years to come, if ever at that. But the one thing that you can hold on to is that I know that he's holy. I know that, I know that he loves you the way that loved, you know that is because while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Is why he, he did all the things that he did. I, I mean, we know that he loved us. He came and he gave us his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Like we know that he loves us and we know that he's a God who delivers. And he will meet you in the middle of your pain. And he will take you moment by moment, day by day, week after week, month after month. And he will walk you through this. And he will provide this healing, this peace which surpasses all understanding. That will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's how he works, church. The final thing that we see in the Psalms, and we're going to see this all throughout the Psalms, is he comes to the Lord in honesty. He's safe. He knows that he can be real before him. God, why have you forsaken me? I know that you're holy. I know that, I know that you're a God who delivers even though it doesn't feel that way right now. And he's just real in these things. And he's doing his best to hold on to these truths that he's having a hard time believing in the middle of that time. And the last thing is he just cries out for help. And he says, God, I need you to help. Not I don't need my counselor to help, number one. I want them to help, number two, number three, and every day after. But I don't need my friends. I don't need family primarily. I, God, I need you to come and be my rescue. I need you to be my help. And we need the community. We need everything else. And those are in the days to come. But he comes honestly before the Lord. And he says, be not far from me, verse 11, for trouble is near, for there's none to help me. He says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting inside of me. But you, O Lord, be not far off, O God, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. And he just cries out to the Lord and he says, God, you're the one that I need. I need you to be near to me right now in the middle of this pain, in the middle of my grief. I need you to come and to bring me the rest and the relief in my soul that nothing else can touch. And church, I just want to tell you, this: it's exactly what God does. Psalm 30, he's going to say this, he's going to say, though weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And it's not a 24-hour time. I hope you don't misunderstand that psalm because he's not saying, hey, you're crying tonight, tomorrow, get over it and be better. He's saying weeping is going to last for a night. Weeping is going to last for a season. Weeping may last for months to come. Weeping may last for years to come. You may always be a part where there's a birthday or an anniversary or something there where you weep. But there will be joy around the corner even though you can't see joy, you can't see rest, you can't see peace right now. I promise you that it is, it is there and it is out there and it will come in the morning. It's what he does. He meets you in the place of Psalm 22 and he graciously by his Holy Spirit will bring you to the times of Psalm 23. Church, the beauty of Psalm 22 is that the person who wrote Psalm 22 is the same author of Psalm 23. It is the same guy that at some point in time in the future, he writes this beautiful psalm we all memorized and loved that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, before there's Psalm 23, there's Psalm 22. My hope and prayer all week long for this family, for everyone who's grieving right now, is that God would meet you in your Psalm 22 and that he would take you in due time to Psalm 23. Not sure really where you are when you came in today. Hopefully you're visiting. You're kind of going, what in the world? Um, some of you came in, and it's a season of celebration. Praise God for that. We'll continue to pray for that. Some of you came in, and you're in the depth of it. You knew the family. You were right there, and you're just mourning like you wouldn't believe. Others, it's triggered something different. In you. you just simply need to know that the same God who was there in Psalm 23 is the same God who's there in Psalm 22.